0: Pray with me, please. Father, we come now to Your Word in hope and confidence because we trust that Your promises will last. And it's in that hopeful expectation that what we find in Your Word communicates to us timeless truths that express Your meaning and purpose for Your creation and for our lives that now gives us a desire to look and to understand what You have for us in Your Word. And so to do that, we will need Your Spirit's help to open our eyes and open our ears. So we ask for that help this morning. We pray for it in Christ's name. Amen. Turn in your copy of the Scriptures to the book of Genesis, chapter 1, verse 26, please. A universal human experience throughout history is man's search for meaning, for purpose. Why are we here? What's the point of it all? The Jewish psychologist and Holocaust survivor Viktor Frankl wrote a best-selling book under the title, Man's Search for Meaning. Years later, reflecting on the millions of copies his book sold under that title, Frankl remarked that the best-seller status of his book indicated that the issue of a meaning to life is clearly a question that burns beneath our fingernails. Or perhaps someone we are a little bit more familiar with. In 1990, Michael W. Smith released the song, Place in This World. He says, The wind is moving, but I am standing still. A life of pages waiting to be filled. A heart that's hopeful, a head that's full of dreams. But this becoming is harder than it seems. It feels like I'm looking for a reason. Roaming through the night to find my place in this world. My place in this world. Not a lot to lean on. I need your light to help me find a place in this world. My place in this world. So why are we here? What is our purpose? What is your, what is my reason for being at all? These big provoking questions penetrate deeply into our hearts, even during the best of times. But what about when life gets hard? What about when your career path turns out to be more of a dead end? What happens when your children have rejected you, rejected the faith, rejected your values? When you come to the realization that you will never have the great impact on the world that you dreamed of having during those naive, hope-filled days of your youth. When you realize that you are a fairly ordinary person, in a fairly ordinary job, living a fairly ordinary life. Why are you here? Why am I here? The opening chapters of the book of Genesis answer these big, probing questions. We find answers about what it means to be human, answers about who we are, why we're here, and what we are created for. So this morning as we continue our series Foundations through the book of Genesis and through the first movement of the book, the movement of creation, we are beginning this morning a mini three-part series on what it means to be human. Today we begin by considering our identity and our mission as human beings. Here's a simple truth. In order to understand our place in this world, we need to understand who we are and what we were created for. And as we consider that together, I'd like to look with you at two truths that emerged from our text this morning. Here's the first. We are created to reflect. We are created to reflect. Go back with me, if you would, to the sixth day of creation that we looked at last week. God has Formed his world in the first three days of creation, and now in the latter three days, he is in the process of filling his world. We're here on day six, and earlier on day six, God has already created the living creatures that creep and crawl on the earth. And then we read in verse 26 Then God said, Let us make man in our image, after our likeness, and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea, and over the birds of the heavens, and over the livestock, and over all of the earth, and over every creeping thing. That creeps on the earth. So, God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. In those verses, we have an unbelievable truth that we often take for granted simply because we are familiar with it. I want you to think back for just a moment to last week and the awesomeness and the grandeur of creation that shouts of the supreme glory of its creator. The creation comprehensively expresses the glory and the power and the majesty of God. It communicates this in a manner that is too eloquent for words. And yet the shocking thought that then comes near the end of the creation narrative there in verses 26 to 27 is that somehow this awesome, all-powerful, infinite God forms mankind as the last of his creatures and impresses upon the man and the woman his own divine image. What? Think about the worth and the dignity that God conveys to these creatures by setting them apart from all other living things and then by investing them with his own divine likeness. What are we to do with a truth like that? Here's how David expresses how we should feel in Psalm 8. When I look at your heavens, the work of your fingers, the moon, the stars which you have set into place, What is man that you are mindful of him, and the son of man that you care for him? Yet you have made him a little lower than the heavenly beings and crowned him with glory and honor. You have given him dominion over the work of your hands. You've put all things under his feet, all sheep and oxen, and also the beasts of the field, the birds of the heavens, and the fish of the seas, whatever passes along the paths of the seas. O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all of the earth. So what is this image and likeness of God that we find in man? What does the image of God consist of? How can we define it? We can say three things about the image of God. First, it is mysterious and glorious. We notice that God does not define for us precisely what comprises this divine image and likeness. Those two words, by the way, image and likeness, are not describing two different things. They are two words that are describing the same thing. The image and likeness is one and the same thing. And commentators and theologians have offered varied and many definitions and proposals about what it is that constitutes this divine image. And often these proposals are filled with all kinds of conjecture and guesswork, and frequently they contradict one another. The truth is that the text does not define for us what is the image of God. And that leaves for us, I think, an appropriate sense of the mystery and the glory of what God has done here. God is so great. He is so wildly beyond definition or even adequate description by his creatures. So to try to precisely define that which God has chosen to partially conceal is both folly and presumption. So if you are here this morning hoping to hear a comprehensive definition of what exactly is the divine image of God in man, then you're going to have to look elsewhere. I do not intend to speak definitively where the Bible is silent. However, I believe that the Bible does give us enough information to provide two additional observations about what this image of God in man means. So here's the second observation. It is more than any one part of man. It is the whole of man. As I mentioned a moment ago, commentators have offered all kinds of thoughts and opinions about what is the image of God in us. Some have suggested that it is our physical bodies, the fact that we are able to have an upward countenance, that we walk on two feet where the rest of creation is described as crawling things that creep on the earth. So perhaps it's our bodies that we walk standing on our own two feet. And doubtless, there is something significant in the physical design of our bodies But it's hard to agree with these theologians when they propose that the image of God is our physical bodies for at least two reasons. First, because as we know from the scriptures, God is a spirit who does not have a body like a man. So consequently, it's hard to understand how the image of God in man would be precisely his physical body when God does not have one. Second, If this divine image consisted simply in the ability to walk upright, then penguins, ostriches, orangutans, and grizzly bears get to at least occasionally join the club. So that doesn't seem to satisfy exactly what this image is after. It must be something more. Others have suggested that perhaps it's our minds. Maybe it's our ability to reason and to make moral choices and decisions that constitutes the image of God. And again, certainly the ability to reason, to think, to make moral choices is something that makes us unique among the creation. It's clearly a gift from God. But then what of a child? What of a child who is formed by God and precious to Him while it is still in the womb of its mother and yet does not yet have the ability to reason or to make moral choices? Or what about those with Alzheimer's or dementia or those with a traumatic injury or those who simply grow old and lose the capacity to reason well and again make moral choices? Have they stopped being human? Have they lost the image of God? No. The Scriptures speak eloquently throughout that God values life even in its most delicate forms. So it can't simply be our minds. Others have suggested perhaps it's the fact that we have a spirit. But once again, there are difficulties with that definition. Angels, for example, are spirits, and yet we never read that they are created in the image of God. In fact, the Bible seems to indicate that man alone is created in the image of God. We read later in the Scriptures that, don't you know, we will rule angels, which seems to be connected with the image of God in us. So it can't simply be that we have a spirit. But more than all of these difficulties, we need to recognize that the Bible does not describe man as being composed of parts, as though he is... Part body and part mind and part spirit. The Bible presents man as being a unified whole. As being a unity. So we need to be careful not to try to ascribe to one facet of man the divine image. Because that seems to break man into parts in a way that the Bible does not. Observation number three about the image of God. Being created in the image of God ultimately enables us to reflect God in the midst of his creation. So we know that the image of God is mysterious and glorious. We know that it isn't simply one part of man. So what is it? What can we positively say about it? We can say this. It is what enables us to reflect God in the midst of his world. We are created to reflect. We are created to reveal God's character. It means that we are designed to represent God visibly in the world. One of my seminary professors would say it like this, being created in God's image means that we are to be the visible representations of the invisible God. So when God commands, be holy as I am holy, notice that he does not speak this command to fish or to birds or to animals who are incapable of pursuing moral obedience. Instead, he speaks to man to those who are formed and fashioned in his image and likeness he says be holy as i am holy or as jesus will pray in the garden of gethsemane to his father to make his disciples one father even as we are one that in some way we are able to image the unity of fellowship like that is enjoyed by god himself or that we are to love one another as god has Loved us, that in some way we are able to image the love that God Himself has. So, at the very least, being made in God's image and in His likeness enables us to reflect parts of God's character in the world. This is why, by the way, we are given dominion. We are to exercise authority. We are to be God's representatives by imaging His authority in the world. Now, I say that we are able to represent part of God's character. Because some of his divine attributes are so far beyond our finite beings that we are incapable of in any way imaging them. Things like God's omniscience, that he is all-knowing, or his omnipresence, that he is everywhere present, or his omnipotence, that he is all-powerful, his immutability, that he is unchanging, his infinitude, that he is without limits. We are incapable as finite human beings bound by space and by time to reflect God in those ways. Those things belong to God alone. They are part of the being of who God is. Theologians refer to these as God's incommunicable attributes. In other words, those attributes that belong only to God and that cannot be reflected by us. But those attributes of God's character that can be imaged or shared by us, theologians call God's communicable attributes, like his love, his mercy, his justice, His righteousness, His holiness, His truthfulness, His grace. We were created to visibly display, to visibly and physically image God's character in the world that He made. That is our calling. That is what it means to be made in the image of God. Before we move on, I'd like to offer you a few rapid-fire applications about what that means for us practically. First, It means that we do not find or discover or create the meaning and purpose for our lives. That's not for us to do. The meaning and purpose for our lives is not something that we discover through some inward spiritual journey. It's not something that we discover by looking inward and trying to determine what we want to do and how we want to fashion the course of our lives. We do not determine the meaning and purpose of our existence. The one who created us does. And he did so when he created us male and female in his image And in his likeness. Our meaning and purpose is prescribed for us by the God who made us to look like him. We are given the incredible privilege and the unbelievably high calling of reflecting the God who made us. That should change things, that should change the way that we live, that should change the way that we speak. It should change the way that we work. It should change the way that we parent. You name it, it should change the way that we live because you and I exist for a purpose. We exist for the glory of God. Application number two, being made in God's image means that all of human life is sacred and is worth honoring and protecting. The ancient Babylonian creation myth, the Enuma Elish, describes the creation of mankind by the Babylonian gods. The gods in those myths grow tired of the wearisome and toilsome work of maintaining the Earth. So they need to think of someone who will do this job for them. So the rest of the gods petition the God Marduk to form man as a means of slave labor to keep the laborious world going. So Marduk creates these gods, these, these men, according to the Babylonian myths, as a plaything of the gods, something that they can torment something that they can spitefully use, and someone who will perform the slave labor that is beneath their own dignity. That is the value or the lack of value on human life that, it, that is inspired in these ancient myths. And these are the contemporary pagan beliefs among the people of the ancient Near East at the same time that Moses is writing the Genesis account. The Enuma Elish and the Genesis account are roughly contemporaneous accounts. Small wonder then that these pagan myths would grow into pagan societies who would think nothing of sacrificing their own children to these gods who hated them. A religion, a pagan religion that places no value in life, will result in a pagan society that equally places no value on life. In the same way that a secular society, a secular religion that places no value on life, will result in a secular society that also places value in life we might not worship Babylonian gods called Marduk but we are naturalists we are naturalists who believe that there is nothing that exists that isn't simply the product of random processes that brought us here so where is the meaning and purpose and value in that the bible presents the creation of mankind in starkly different terms We are not created to satisfy a malevolent God's sadistic desires, nor are we the result of random processes, undirected. We are created instead by a God who loves and who cares for us. A God who crowns us with the glory and honor of being made in his own image and likeness. Which means that all of human life, from the moment of its conception until the moment that its creator ordains for it to cease, and every moment in between is worth honoring and protecting. It's why Christians like William Wilberforce fought to abolish the slave trade. It's why Christians like Dietrich Bonhoeffer and Corrie Ten Boom hid Jews in their homes. It's why we stand for the life of the unborn. It's why we care about caring for the orphan among us. It's why we affirm the dignity and value of those with disabilities. It's why we affirm the worth and dignity of those who have grown old. These are not political commitments. These are theological commitments that reflect our belief that all human life is created in the image of its creator and is therefore sacred. Application number three Being made in the image of God means that men and women possess together equal worth and dignity. Those various ancient pagan religions that I mes- mes- mentioned a moment ago suggest that men were created as an object of torment and entertainment for the gods. But when the gods saw that mankind was still somehow a little bit too happy, they created woman in order to torment him further. <laughs> Don't kill the messenger. thought. <laughs> they were pagans, all right? Pagans. It was common in pagan religions to demean and objectify women. And when you have that happen in your religion, what do you think happens in the society? What becomes critical and foundational in the religion becomes foundational in the society and so these pagan societies were known were characterized by their demeaning and objectifying stance on women but genesis 127 provides something unbelievably countercultural in the time that it was written genesis 127 makes clear that male and female were together created in god's image that god created men and women with equal worth and dignity We are created male and female to reflect who God is. The question is, understanding that, that we are created to reflect the God who made us, how does that inform, practically speaking, our mission? That leads us to the second truth in our text this morning. We are created to fill the earth for the fame of God's glory. That is why we exist. So thinking back again to the end of chapter 1, the man and the woman are created by God They're formed in His image. Then in chapter 1, verses 28 and 29, we read that they are commanded to be fruitful and multiply. In other words, they are to produce more image bearers. They are then commissioned with the task of filling the earth and subduing it. And then they are endowed with authority over this creation. Dominion as creation representatives of God. They are appointed as His vice regents over His creation. But in order to understand the implications of all that that means, we actually need to drop down to chapter 2. The first three verses of chapter 2, we looked at this last week, it describes the seventh day where God sets it aside as holy, the the Sabbath day. But then, the rest of chapter 2, beginning in verse 4, actually goes back, it rewinds, back to the events of day 6. It it rewinds and it zooms back into the sixth day of creation. So read with me, if you would, verses 4 through 15 of chapter 2. These are the generations of the heaven and the earth when they were created, in the day that the Lord God made the heavens. When no bush of the field was yet in the land, and no small plant of the field had yet sprung up, for the Lord God had not caused it to rain on the land, and there was no man to work the ground, and a mist was going up from the land and was watering the whole face of the ground, then the Lord God formed the man of dust from the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and the man became a living creature." Delium and Onkstone are there. The name of the second river is the Gihon. It is the one that flowed around the whole land of Cush. And the name of the third river is the Tigris, which flows east of Assyria. And the fourth river is the Euphrates. Lord God took the man, put him in the Garden of Eden to work it and to keep it. So prior to commissioning the man and the woman... Chapter 2 goes back and rewinds to the creation of man first, that he was created from the dust of the earth. So this is before Eve comes on the scene. And so prior to giving the, the command to be fruitful and multiply, to fill the earth and subdue it, before any of that happens, God forms the man. He then forms the Garden of Eden. He takes the man, he places him in the garden, and he tells the man, your first responsibility is to work and to keep the garden. And then comes the woman. And then comes the command that's given to them in the end of chapter 1 to be fruitful and multiply, to fill the earth and subdue it, to reign and to rule as God's vice regents. But here is the question that we need to ask and answer this morning. How can mankind do both? How can the man both work and keep the garden and also fill the earth and subdue it? What actually is his mission here? Because he's commanded work and keep this garden, which seems to preclude his ability to go out and to Fill and subdue the earth. So how can he accomplish both of those things? The answer is this. He must expand the garden. That is his mission. To push the garden outwards. To grow and expand the garden. In order to better appreciate that mission, we need to understand very quickly the significance of Eden. Eden is not a throwaway place in the biblical narrative. Eden is a place that controls the whole narrative of the scriptures. Eden is not simply a beautiful oasis in which God places the man. The garden of the Lord is much more than that. The garden of Eden is the prototype temple sanctuary of God. And this becomes evident as we read through the scriptures when we notice that the tabernacle and the temple are both intentionally fashioned in order to replicate and evoke some of the key features that we find in the garden of Eden. And we could look at any number of similarities between the Garden of Eden and the, tab- the Tabernacle and the Temple. But very quickly, we're going to look at nine pieces of correspondence between the Garden and the Temple and Tabernacle. For the sake of time, I'm not going to go through all of the cross-references. They're there for you in your notes so you can look at those after the sermon this morning. We don't have time to look at each of those this morning. But nine points of correspondence between the Garden and the Tabernacle and Temple. Number one. The wood carvings that will later be in the temple and the the tabernacle, the wood carvings of trees and of gourds and of open flowers that greet you as soon as you enter into the temple temple sanctuary were all intentionally created to provide a garden-like ambiance as soon as you entered the temple. A number of the gems that we just read about that are described in Eden are the same gems that will later be featured on the robe of the high priest when he goes to minister into the temple. Number three, Eden is described, as we just read, as a place filled with fine gold. The holy of holies, the place where God's presence is said to dwell, is overlaid with gold. Number four, the tree-shaped lampstand, also called the menorah, is placed in the center of the tabernacle and later the temple. It was long connected in Hebrew literature as symbolic of the tree of life. That was what it was supposed to represent. We just read the tree of life was placed in the midst of the garden. Number five, when Adam and Eve are cast out of the Garden of Eden and out of the presence of the Lord as a result of their sin, a cherubim, a a warrior of God is placed at the entrance of the garden to guard it in in order to guard their access back to the place where God's presence is said to dwell. The veil that guards the presence of the Lord in the holy of holy places in the temple, that veil is embroidered with cherubim. Number six, God is said to walk in the garden with man in Genesis 3 verse 8, which is the same word that will later be used of God walking in the midst of the camp of Israel where the tabernacle is. Seven, Adam and Eve are expelled from Eden at the east entrance where there the cherubim is then placed. The tabernacle and then later the temple are oriented so that the entrance faces the east. So in order to enter the presence of God, you are going west. And then as you Leave the presence of God, beginning from the holy place where, again, there is a cherubim placed there at the door, and then you continue to make your way out of the temple. You are going east. You are exiting the presence of God. It is like you are, again, leaving Eden. Number eight, Adam, as we just saw, is commanded to work and to keep the garden in Genesis 2, verse 15. And the only time that those two words will appear together in all of the Old Testament are in the book of Numbers. Chapter 3, chapter 8, and chapter 18. In each time, those words are used to describe the job of the Levites, the priests, in keeping and guarding the altar and the sanctuary. It is priestly language that is describing the priestly function. In other words, Adam is being commanded to practice and and fulfill the work of the priest in keeping the Garden of Eden. Number nine. Eden rests on a mountain that faces the east. Israel's later temple would also rest on the Temple Mount facing the east, as would the eschatological temple promised in Ezekiel 47. Eden had rivers flowing from it, as would the future promised temple of Ezekiel 47. We could go on. But the takeaway here is that Eden is again not a place that the Bible introduces and in two chapters suddenly just vanishes. Eden is a place that is profoundly important in the whole biblical story. The tabernacle and the temple are modeled after Eden because Eden is the garden sanctuary of God where he walks with his people. And God does not abandon that vision when the events of Genesis chapter 3 happen. Instead, he intends to redeem the vision that is cast for us in Eden. In Adam and Eve's first great mission as people created to reflect God's image, their first mission given to all of mankind as image bearers of God is to take the borders of this garden and to expand them outwards, to fill the earth and to subdue it, to take the garden and fill the earth with it so that the earth and the whole of it would become a cosmic sanctuary of God that would be filled with his image bearers who delight in him, who worship him, and who reign and who rule with him. That is the image, that is the mission that Genesis chapter 2 casts for humanity. That is what we were created for. By the way, doesn't that sound like the end of the story that is pictured in the book of Revelation? Of a new heaven and a new earth where, notice, there is, again, like in Eden, no physical temple building. Why? Because the whole earth has become the temple of God where he lives and he reigns with his people. It will be Eden reborn. We were created to fill the earth with the fame of God's glory. To create a new creation in the earth where God would be eternally worshipped and enjoyed forever by all of his creatures everywhere. That was the mission. So as we begin to close this morning, as we think about how we apply that mission to our context, I'd like to close with another set of rapid fire applications for us. The first is this, who we are as image bearers underscores the significance of the second commandment. What do you expect to find if you were to go into a pagan temple? I'd submit to you that you'd expect to find an image or an idol in that temple, an image of the God who is worshipped in that place. Remember, for example, when the Ark of the Covenant is captured by the Philistines. They take it and they place it in the temple of their god Dagon. Of course, this is a very humorous story because they come in the next day and the image of Dagon, the huge statue of Dagon that's in the middle of the temple has fallen on its face in front of the Ark of the Covenant. So it's a remarkable story. But the point is that there in the middle of this pagan temple is an image of the god who is worshipped there. But for all of these pagan gods we notice that their images are inanimate. They're made of wood and stone, things that cannot speak and cannot hear. I think that's interesting. We're going to come back to that in just a second. But notice in the middle of the garden, in the middle of this temple sanctuary of God, God places his image in the form of mankind whom he had made. Now, these pagan images, these pagan idols placed in the middle of a temple, they are Woodstone stone, and they cannot speak, they cannot hear, which eloquently testifies that they are images of false gods who are equally deaf and mute. But that's not what God does. The image of God that he places in his creation temple is alive. It is able to reign and it is able to rule as God's representative. It is able to reflect his own character in his world because we are image bearers not of dead idols. We are image bearers of the living God. And this is in part why the second commandment is so critical, that we are not to make carved objects as objects of worship. Why? First, because any carved image that we would fashion will be a gross distortion of who God is. It will constitute rank idolatry. But second, because God has already made an image of himself in us. Number two, The image of God in man and our commission to reflect God's glory and to spread the fame of his glory to the earth means that we are created for work. Work is not a consequence of the fall. Work is not a product of sin. Genesis 2 verse 2 says twice that God rested on the seventh day from the work that he had done in creating the world. So God worked. And then in Genesis 2, verse 5, we read that before the creation of man, there was no one there to work the ground, to cultivate it, to develop it, to husband it. And then in 2, verse 15, God tells the man that he is to work and keep the garden. So here's the point. Work is not a consequence of the fall. Work is God's design for his very good creation. The only consequence of the fall that we read is that this work becomes laborious. It now will happen as a result of the sweat of our brow because of the curse that's on creation. But work itself is part of God's good design and it is part of how we worship and image the creator God who worked in the creation of his world. Which means that the work that you and I do matters. It matters. Even and perhaps especially the mundane daily things that we do. The working and keeping of the garden. The working and keeping of the garden is the first command that's given to the man before the fill the earth and subdue it command comes along. Notice that. Have you ever thought about the way that you mow your lawn, or the way that you maintain your house, or the way that you perform your job at work with excellence? Is actually part of how you image God and bring Him glory. When we do the work around us well, we are performing the kinds of small culture-forming creation-cultivating work that reflects God's own character. Number three, our identity as image-bearers reveals our ultimate purpose for being. It reveals our place in this world. Our mission and purpose as people made in God's image is to spread the knowledge and the glory of God to the othermost ends of the earth. Our mission statement as a church is that we are called to glorify God. We chose that statement not because it's a catchy slogan. We chose that statement because that is what we are created and that is what we are redeemed to do, to glorify God. Now, the question is this. How does this commission to be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it, how is that impacted by the results of Genesis chapter 3? How is our mission in the world changed by the reality of the fall? what does our mission now look like? I'd suggest to you it looks something like this. Matthew 28, 19 through 20. Go therefore, make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. In other words, be fruitful, multiply, fill the earth and subdue it for the sake of the gospel until image bearers from every tongue, every tribe, every nation, proclaim the glory of the God who made him, awaiting the time when God makes all things new and restores the vision of Eden with people from every part of his earth. That is our place in this world. Let's get after it. Let's pray. Father, we are humbled by the thought that the one who made heaven and earth the one who formed the skies and every planet, the one who set the dimensions of space, the one who set the limits of the oceans. On the sixth day, you took man and you formed us male and female in your image, that you have given us a mission in this world to reflect your own glorious character. What a high calling that is, God. What an honor. So, Lord, may we be faithful in the doing of it. May we think well about the work that you have given to us, May we think well about the opportunities that you give us every day and the little things and everything that we do of how we are being reflections of the invisible God. We ask these things in Christ's name. Amen.